0: Okay, so that's John chapter 15, starting at verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He casts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, or every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love, if you obey my commandments, and remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands, and remain in his love. I have told you this, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. My command is this Love each other as I have loved you Greater love has no one than this That he lay down his life for his friends You are my friends if you do what I command I no longer call you servants Because a servant does not know his master's business Instead, I have called you friends For everything that I have learned from my father I have made known to you You did not choose me But I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give what you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command, love each other.
1: Thank you for the reading, thank you for your welcome. When Carrie Sandham interviewed me and Carolyn last night, she was uh, asking um, if we could just explain a little bit about the Cornhill training course, and uh, Matt has kindly... Uh, agreed for me to put a number of our little introductory booklets, it's called Prepared to Preach on the bookstore, you'll see a little pile of them, they're free, the other things on the bookstore I assume are not free, but this, these ones are, so if you're interested or you know somebody's interested, do um, pick one of those up. In the, um, com- in the weekend, church weekend booklet, if you could turn to page 7, you'll find there uh, the headings and teaching points I'm hoping to make And I hope you've got that passage in John 15 open. Before I speak, let's pray. Father, we need the help of your Holy Spirit to understand your word. We pray for his work of opening our eyes, softening our hearts, and bending our wills to your will. For Jesus' sake, amen. It's uh, easy to get the wrong end of the stick. This is a true story somebody sent me yesterday from um, a semi-rural area in Hertfordshire where on a, on a country road there was a sign which said Deer Crossing and uh, a new resident of the area wrote to the highways department asking for the sign to be removed because they said too many deers are being hit by cars out here I don't think this is a good place for them to be crossing anymore. (laughs) It's easy to get the wrong end of the stick. That that has very little connection with my talk, but I enjoyed it. (laughs) I, I thought you might like that, just to brighten your Saturday morning. Let me ask a more serious question. Do you think you're making a mistake being a Christian? If you're a Christian, I don't want to assume that everybody here is necessarily a Christian. If you're not, it's lovely to have you here. I'm so glad you are here. I hope that this weekend you'll learn something of what real Christian faith is. But if you are a Christian and you've you've put your head above the parapet, maybe in the workplace, and you've said, perhaps in a conversation at the water cooler, you've said, you know, quietly, perhaps quite shyly, perhaps quite humbly, you've said, I am a Christian. And you've, you've experienced, perhaps just the raised eyebrow of surprise from some of your colleagues maybe more than that maybe the curled lip of a sneer maybe experience the cold shoulder being missed out of things and you've wondered if you're making a mistake to be a Christian is to believe not just in a vague spirituality uh, that, that some sort of God or gods are important in some way but very specifically and particularly that Jesus of Nazareth is the only way to God and most people around us don't think that Most people around us think that's narrow and bigoted. And most of the important and powerful people in London don't think that. They don't think Jesus matters very much. And I'm sure that Jesus' little group of apostles must have wondered that. We're in John chapters 13 to 16. Let me just give you a little bit of context. Chapters 1 to 12 of John's Gospel, roughly the first half of John's telling of the Jesus story, are sometimes called the book of the Signs which is the word that John uses for those kind of signpost miracles that John selects of Jesus to pointers to who he is. And the first 12 chapters are filled with the most wonderful signs culminating in the raising of the dead of, of Lazarus. Just glance back to chapter 12, verse 37, if you would, which is a sad verse, but an important one. Chapter 12, verse 37 even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they, that is most of the Jewish people, still would not believe in him. And so that first half of John's Gospel, on the face of it, is a failure. Wonderful signs, very, very little belief. At the beginning of chapter 13, Jesus is with the twelve, the apostles, the twelve apostles, and two things have happened. One is that he's washed their feet as a, as a sign of the way he, he washes them inwardly. And the second thing that's happened is that Judas Iscariot, who's going to betray him, has left the room. And so we're now left just with the eleven. And those eleven must have wondered if they were making a mistake, don't you think? must have been times when they thought, I wonder if we're backing a loser and through chapters 13 and 14, if you read them later, chapters 13 and 14, there question after question it comes to Jesus. Chapter 13, verse 36, Lord, where are you going? Jesus keeps t- talking about going away. Where are you going? Chapter 14, verse 5, Thomas, Lord, we don't know where you're going. Chapter 14, verse 8, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. Chapter 14, verse 22, another of the apostles says, Lord, why why you, you... you going to show yourself to us but not to the world what's happening we don't understand what's happening and then the end of chapter 14 if you look at the very end of chapter 14 verse 30 Jesus says I'm not going to speak with you much longer this final briefing uh, of this little group of the eleven is not going to go on much longer because the prince of this world that is the leader of the powers of evil is coming and he's talking about the cross He has no hold on me, but the world must learn that I love the Father. That's why I'm going to the cross. I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. And then Jesus says, come now, let us leave. And there's a slight puzzle, because actually chapters 15 and 16 carry on after that. And then chapter 17, Jesus prays a wonderful prayer with them listening. And if you look on to the beginning of chapter 18, the beginning of chapter 18 when Jesus had finished praying Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley just to the east of Jerusalem between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives and so the question is what's happening in chapters 15, 16 and 17 and there are two possibilities one possibility is Jesus says um, come on let's go but actually they don't and uh, as someone's pointed out it's not the first time that's happened you know it's time to go and then nobody goes, or I think more likely they do go, and that actually chapters 15, 16, and 17 happen as they are walking through the city of Jerusalem, and then then by the time they reach the beginning of chapter 18, they cross the Kidron Valley and leave the, the city. We don't know which of those, but either way, Jesus is alone with the 11, the 12 without Judas. Now, as we look at these chapters 15 and 16, which is our subject this weekend, Two things to get our bearings. The first is, these eleven apostles are in one important sense unique. And we'll see that on one or two occasions in these verses. They are unique. Uh, You and I are not and cannot be apostles in that sense. They were eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry. Later they became eyewitnesses of his resurrection. But the second thing is that, in another sense, these eleven apostles are the church of Jesus Christ in embryo they're a kind of embryonic church they are the, the the apostolic church the church that follows the teaching of the apostles in embryo and therefore what Jesus says to them um, if we're careful we can understand that he does also say to us we, we start with um, today's passage which I've called The Church and Her Love uh, this morning, verses 1 to 17 I've divided it, as I think it divides, in two verses 1 to 8 uh, I've said the Father, God the Father, will make the world a fruitful garden. And then verses 9 to 17, the fruit of the garden is the overflow of the Father's love. Those are the two main divisions. Jesus begins our passage by talking, by using gardening language. Very, very strong in verses 1 to 8. Um, the vine, the gardener, verse 1. The branch in verse 2, fruit, branch, fruit, prunes, fruitful. Um, verse 4, branch, fruit, vine, fruit. Verse 5, vine, branches, um, fruit and so on. All the way through, it's language, gardening language. And the word fruit particularly comes eight times in, in this morning's passage and only twice in the rest of John's Gospel. So fruit is the big, big theme, gardening, stuff. And uh, I want to start by doing a little bit of Bible background, which is going to be really important to understand this. So you'll see on the the heading, this um, fruitful garden, this is the Father's plan for a wilderness world. I want us to, to notice this. We tend to focus, if you've been a Christian for a while, you know that where Jesus says, I am the true vine, it's one of the great I am sayings of John's Gospel. We tend to focus on that and think about Jesus. But I want us to begin by thinking about his Father. Because in a sense, if you think of a gardening analogy, who's more important, the vine or the gardener? There's a real sense in which the gardener's more important. After all, the gardener puts the vine there in the first place. And I want to focus a little bit on the father, who is the gardener. Now, there's a big Bible story behind this. Think back, if you know your Bibles, and if you don't, do look at it later, to Genesis chapters 2 and 3. Which pictures the beginnings of the world and the beginnings of the human race in terms of a garden. And a garden is a place of order rather than chaos. A garden is a place, a garden is a place of beauty rather than ugliness. A garden is a place of fruitfulness rather than sterility. And the story begins, in a sense, in a garden. Now look if you will, we're not going to do a great paper chase around the Bible, but I want to look at one other passage. Keep a finger in John 15. And turn back, if you will, to Psalm 80. Uh, If you can't find the Psalms, there's somewhere in the middle of the Bible, and you may find someone next to you who can find them, if you can't. If not, ask a member of staff, and if they can't, then tell Matt. (laughs) And he'll sack them. Psalm 80. Psalm 80 is a psalm which is, is is clearly written at a time when God's people are, are having a bad time. They're under God's judgment. I want us to notice what's said from verse 8 onwards. Verse 8, uh, Asaph, the writer of the psalm, reminds God of something. He says, You, God, you brought a vine out of Egypt. So a vine, there is a picture of the people of Israel. You brought them out of Egypt... You drove out the nations, that is the godless nations in the promised land, and you planted it, you planted the vine. Verse 9, you cleared the ground for it, it took root, filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its, its boughs to the sea, that's the Mediterranean Sea. Its shoots as far as the river, that's the Euphrates in the east, and so on. And leave, we'll leave it there because I'm not going to look at the, the psalm in detail, but the picture is this if you go back to to John 15 the picture is very simple since Genesis 3 when the gardener was sacked when Adam and Eve who were meant to be looking after the garden abdicated and were then sacked since Genesis 3 this world which was made to be a beautiful fruit bearing orderly garden with moral order in it and life has become a place which is a wilderness and a place of disorder and death and God's plan is to plant a vine a beautiful, growing, fruitful vine as a way of reclaiming a wilderness world that's the big Bible picture here and Israel is that vine that's the Old Testament theme you can look up later the passages I put on the the, um, uh, handout in Isaiah chapter 5 which makes the point that Israel messed up and didn't do what the vine should have done and Isaiah 27 which is looking forward to the future when one day the vine will be what the vine was meant to be but the picture is very very simple I remember once visiting a family friends of ours who just moved into a new house with a garden and the previous owners of the house or the tenants had completely neglected it it was a complete wilderness some of you may, you know, maybe your family homes or something, you have gardens like that And it was just covered in sort of ground elder and couch grass and I don't know what. It was just thorns and thistles and weeds, complete mess. And gradually they dug it up and dug up the weeds and gradually planted things and gradually turned it into a place of order and beauty. That's a picture of what God is doing in a wilderness world. Now Israel, the people of Israel, had really latched on to this idea of being the vine. And both Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, and the Roman historian Tacitus, tell us that in Herod's temple in Jerusalem, at the time of Jesus, over, over the entrance there was a magnificent golden ornamental vine. As a way of saying, of proclaiming at the, t- at the temple, we are God's planting. We are the place where it's at. If you want to see a wilderness world being put back into order, we are where it's at. It's been suggested that Jesus' talks, says I am the true vine at the time when they, perhaps they were walking past that. We don't know, but it's quite possible. So when Jesus says, verse 1, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener, he is saying my father God has a plan for reclaiming a messed up wilderness world. And the plan is to plant a vine which bears fruit. And Jesus says I am the true vine. So he's saying, all those powerful people there, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, all the people who matter in Jerusalem, say that we are the vine. But actually, says Jesus, I am the true vine, the real vine. So stick with me. They, they'll say to you, all the people who matter think it's there in the temple, but actually it's with me. So that's the first thing. This is the Father's plan for a wilderness World. Now, just on fruit before we go on, I've put a whole load of references from the New Testament there. We're not going to look them up, but you can look them up later. Fruit, in, in, in this image of the vine, fruit means all the stuff that results from being tied into God and to Jesus. So fruit particularly means godly or Christ-like character. So in Isaiah chapter 5, um, the, 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 the God says through the prophet that, that God had looked for justice fairness, righteousness instead of which he found injustice so he said it's not fruitful so fruit is justice, fairness, righteousness Christian behaviour we'll see that actually as we go through these two chapters it's more than that it's also spreading the good news of God's rescue to others but it's, it's all the stuff that makes the world an orderly, beautiful, life-filled place rather than a disorderly place. So that's the first thing. That's just to get our, our bearings, really. Now, verses 3 to 8 make the point that God is going to do this through the church. This is how God is going to put into effect this vine strategy, the plan for a wilderness world. And I want us to notice a number of important things here. Because what, what Jesus is saying is this. He's saying, I, Jesus, am where it's at. I am the locus of God's rescue plan for the world. And if you're tied into me, vitally tied into me, you are part of God's rescue plan for the world. If you're not, you're a weed. So the guys out there in the temple don't think they're weeds. They think they're fine, beautiful vine branches, but they're weeds. So that's what Jesus is saying. Now he's saying he'll do it through the, 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 the church. Look at verse 3. No, sorry, verse 2. The, the, the father, the gardener, cuts off every branch that doesn't bear fruit, that would be somebody like Judas Iscariot somebody who's nominally tied in, who is in church but not in Christ who has the outward appearance of of being part of the vine but isn't really, he cuts off well every branch that does bear fruit he prunes or cleans the the, the word prunes and cleans mean, mean and sound the same, so that it'll be even more fruitful And then Jesus goes on in verse 3 and he says, you are already clean, you are already pruned because of the word I've spoken to you. So the first thing I want us to notice in verses 3 to 8 is that the Christian life begins by being cleansed by Jesus' word. It begins not with something we do, but with something he does. So he doesn't say to them, try to be clean. He says, you are already made clean. I have already cleaned you chapter 13 he washes their feet you're clean not every one of you because Judas wasn't but now it's just the eleven they're all clean in that sense so the Christian life begins with that being cleaned by Jesus and in a sense one of the first things in the Christian life very often is the assurance that Jesus has done something for me that's what the Christian life begins with but it goes on from there to abiding Verse 4 through to the beginning of verse 7. Jesus says in, in, in the NIV which I'm using, remain or stay or abide in me. Stay loyal to me. Stay tied into to me vitally. And I will abide or remain in you. And then he uses a, a, a picture which is pretty obvious really, but just needs saying. No branch can bear fruit by itself. You know, you can cut a branch off a vine and you can stick it on your windowsill in your flat and, and you can wait an awful long time for the grapes to appear but they're not going to come. It's not a difficult picture. I mean, I'm not a great gardener but I do understand that. So he says, you've got to be tied into the vine. Uh, if a man remains in me, if somebody remains or abides in Jesus, vitally united to Jesus, and he's speaking of the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart, of a believer and I in him he'll bear much fruit apart from me you can do nothing that is to say apart from being tied in vitally to Jesus being a real Christian you and I can achieve nothing worthwhile in life most of the people in our workplaces don't believe that do they most of the people in our workplaces think being tied into Jesus is a big mistake but actually it's the only way to do anything worthwhile in life verse 6 if anyone Doesn't remain or abide in me. He's like a branch that's thrown away and with such branches picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. Vine, vine wood is useless. Nothing you can do with it. You can't make furniture out of it or anything. You just burn it. That's all you do. So verse 7, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. Now, to be a Christian is to be joined to Christ on the inside. To be baptized does not make a man or woman a Christian. I was talking to a friend of mine in the United States uh, at half term, last term. And he was saying that when he came to faith in Christ, he was in an um, Episcopalian, sort of Anglican church, the Bishop of New Hampshire came to him, because his parents were very cross that he'd become a Christian. And the Bishop of New Hampshire came to him and said, you became a Christian when I baptized you as a baby. And he said, no, I didn't. Being baptized doesn't make you a Christian. Taking the Lord's Supper or Communion doesn't make you a Christian. Being on the church staff doesn't make you a Christian. Reading the Bible doesn't make you a Christian. Saying your prayers doesn't make you a Christian. Being a Christian is being vitally united with Christ on the inside. It's not an optional extra. Now, just notice in verse 7, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, what does Jesus mean? my words. What are Jesus' words? Has anybody here got a red letter Bible? One or two. Yeah, my wife's got a red letter Bible. They're rubbish. Let me give you, <laughs> we were given it, I was given it and I gave it to Carolyn, so there we are. <laughs> Let me give you five reasons why red letter Bibles are a bad idea and why the, the, bits, pli- the bits printed in red are not, um, that doesn't, equate with Jesus' words Um, here are five reasons one um, we don't know there are no speech marks in the original and we don't know which words are in direct speech from Jesus and which aren't we don't know whether John 3.16 for God so loved the world etc was said by Jesus or by John the Gospel writer so that's one reason so it's difficult to know what to print in red second Jesus probably didn't speak in Greek anyway so even if you read a Greek New Testament printed in red you won't get Jesus' actual words. Third, the Gospel writers clearly precede and summarized what Jesus said. You can see that by comparing the different Gospels. Um, so, so we don't know what Jesus said. Fourth reason, this is the first really significant one. Fourth reason, those are just little ones. They're just little niggles. Fourth reason, every word that the Apostles wrote taught um, and that was then written down either by them or by others in their circle in the New Testament every word that's written down in the New Testament of the Apostles teaching is authentically reliably in a trustworthy way Jesus' words so if you're going to have a red letter Bible print the whole New Testament in red we'll see that as we go through these chapters one or two occasions where well that's the case five Jesus taught consistently that the whole of the Old Testament was entirely the Word of God and he taught us how to taught his apostles how to interpret it rightly. So if you're gonna have a red letter Bible, print the whole Old Testament in red as well. So think when Jesus speaks of his word or his words as his entire message as reliably conveyed to us in the whole of the Bible. Is that all right? If you've got a red letter Bible, welcome to use it, but just learn a bit of colour blindness. now Jesus says in verse 7 if, if, if you abide in me and my words abide in you that is to say if you become a Bible moth Christian eating up the Bible so that the Bible is something that you read and the Bible is something that you go and hear taught and the Bible is something that you're hungry to understand even though you're puzzled by bits of it if that happens to you then he says verse 7 ask whatever you want and my father will give it to you oh sorry it will be given to you why this extraordinary promise I mean it sounds wonderful dear father I'd love to have a BMW what's going on if you abide in me says Jesus and my words abide in you in other words if I become the sort of person who is beginning to be shaped by Jesus through the Bible then what I want and what I ask is going to begin to line up with God, the will of God. So that promise in verse 7, ask whatever you want, is not a promise for lots of autonomous individuals all to ask contradictory things. That poses big philosophical problems, of course. You know, the farmer asks for rain and the holidaymakers ask for sun. What's God going to do? It's like Bruce Almighty, isn't it? I mean, what do you do? You can't run it that way. This is a promise that those whose wills and desires are shaped by the word of Jesus, can ask, because what they then ask will be according to the word of of Jesus, and God will delight to give it. It's a wonderful promise, but it is a promise for those in whom the word of Jesus is abiding. And then Jesus says lastly on this, in verse 8, that that if, if the Christian life begins with assurance of being made clean, it continues with abiding, it has with it the privilege of asking, then lastly, verse 8, there is an aim in the Christian life, which is the Father's glory. This is to my Father's glory. Glory, it's one of those religious words that washes over us, isn't it? I wonder how well you'd get on if a non-Christian said to you, what does glory mean? Sort of, that it washes over us. We think it sounds rather nice, you know, the stuff you put in songs and sing it, and it just makes you feel good if you like the songs. Um, somebody said that glory... The Father's glory is like putting the Father's name in lights. I thought it was a really good picture. Glory is where the invisible God becomes visible. And we begin to see him for who he is. So Jesus says, this is to my Father's glory. People can't see God. But when people see men and women in a Christian church, living godly lives, fruit-bearing lives, fair, kind, true, pure lives then they, they get a glimpse of what the Father God is actually like. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit. I'm showing yourselves to be my disciples. So there's the picture, the Father will make the world a fruitful garden. I want to go on to the second half, in verses 9 to 17. And if you look carefully at this passage um, later, you'll notice that in verses 9 to 17 there's a language shift. Verses one to eight, the language is about fruit, 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 fruit—eight fruit. times, I think, in those verses. In the second half, the, the 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 big idea that goes through the second half is love, and that helps to understand helps us to understand what fruit is. That fruit here supremely is love. The, 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 we'll see after coffee that the, the word that defines the world, I couldn't care less about God, is hatred. But the word that defines the church, the Father's people, Jesus' people, is love. Now I think there's a, quite a simple pattern to verses 9 to 17, which is that in verses 9 to 11 we see love flowing into the church, the inflow of love. And then in verses 12 to 17 we see that the love that has flowed into the church Flowing out of the church as an overflow of love to others. So let's start with the inflow of love. First of all, notice in verse 9 that it is received through Jesus. The inflow of love is received through Jesus. As the Father has loved me. Again and again in John's Gospel, Jesus rejoices in that. Chapter 5, verse 20, for the Father loves the Son. In his prayer in chapter 17, he says, Because you loved me before the foundation of the world, as the Father has loved me, that eternal, intimate love of the Father for the Son, so have I loved you. Chapter 13 begins by saying that Jesus, having loved his own, went on loving them to the end, or or, or to, to, to the full extent. So have I loved you. So Jesus says verse 9, now, remain or abide or stay in my love. That sounds rather a strange thing to say, doesn't it? My friends, stay being loved by Jesus. Isn't that a little bit odd? He says, well, yeah, (laughs) but what am I supposed to do about that? Jude says something very, very similar in his, his letter. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God. And the idea is this, that But by his Holy Spirit, God has poured the Father's love into our hearts, if we're Christians. And we need to remain in that love, and it's actually very, very profound. Why is it that I turn away from God's path? Let me suggest that one of the biggest reasons, one of the deepest reasons, is because I'm not deeply convinced that the Father loves me. Why is it that when things are tough as a Christian and the devil whispers in my ear you'd be much better off going somewhere else I'm inclined to go somewhere else because I'm not deeply convinced that the father loves me why is it that a Christian marries a non-Christian because they're they're not deeply convinced that the father loves them and that even when things are really tough as a Christian he loves them so Jesus says remain in my love So Christianity is not moralism. Jesus isn't saying, do your best, keep turning over a new leaf, try to be good, try to be good, try to be good. He says, abide in my love. He says, I want you to understand that the Father loved me and the love with which the Father loved me I have poured out to you and I want you to stay within the circle of my love, confident that he loves me. It's a wonderful truth, isn't it? It's a very deep truth. So it begins with with something that is, is received through Jesus. Next, notice in verse 10 that this inflow of love is made real by obedience. Jesus says in verse 10, if you obey my commands. And you remember my commands, my words, my word, the whole teaching of the Bible. If you obey my commands, you will remain, abide in my love. And it's not, this isn't cold legalism. He doesn't say, if you obey my commands, then I'll love you. See, he goes on to say, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and abide in his love why did Jesus obey the Father's commands? because he knew the Father loved him he never doubted that the Father loved him for a moment and that's why as he walked through life he he always kept the Father's commands willingly, gladly so Jesus says this is the mark of somebody who's abiding in the love of Jesus and the inflow of love is made real by obedience and notice in verse 11 that it results in joy I've told you, verse 11, I've told you this, so that my joy, that is the joy that Jesus had walking through life in fellowship with the Father, and the joy of seeing people rescued, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. It's a wonderful thing to rejoice in the fact that the Father loves you. Now, in some ways, if you forget everything else this weekend, I'd love you to go away saying to yourself, the Father loves me. Jesus loves me, but the love with which Jesus loves me is the love with which the Father loves me. The Father loves me. That is a steady, absolute truth if you're a Christian. All the love of the Father is received through Jesus. That's why it's so important to be a Christian, but it's a wonderful truth and it results in joy. That's the inflow of love. Now notice that the way in which this love overflows from the church, the overflow of love. First of all, in verses 12 to 14, there is what I've called the motive of the cross. So verse 12, my command, this in a way sums up the word of Jesus, the message of the Bible in a sense. My command is this, love each other. There's nothing new about love each other. The Old Testament had that, love your neighbor as yourself. That's not new. Love each other as I have loved you. And Jesus is about to go to the cross. That's the love with which he speaks. Love one another because I've loved you and love one another in the same way that I've loved you with costly sacrificial love. Augustine famously said, Love and do what you want. Love and do what you want. It is very easily misunderstood but very profound. Because if I love, then what I want is to love. Love is precisely my affection and if I love God and I love Jesus and I love other people for his sake then doing what I want will be loving love and do what you want and Jesus says I do that because of my death for you, verse 13 greater love has no one than this than he lay down his life for his friends now of course it's, it's a greater love than that to lay down your life for your enemies and Jesus did that but if we're thinking of friends what's the greatest thing you can do for a friend it's to lay down your life your friends and that's what Jesus does you're my friends if you do what I command in other words obedience is the the mark of Jesus' friends it characterizes them it doesn't make us Jesus' friends but it it characterizes us as Jesus' friends now to those uh, motivated by the cross Jesus gives us a mission in verses 15 and the beginning of 16 so verse 15 I no longer call you servants They were his servants, we are his servants. But the reason is that a servant doesn't know his master's business. A servant just you tell the servant what to do and the servant does it. Ours not to reason why. That's the servant's job. Do this, I say to my uh, soldiers, says the centurion, do this and he does it. Doesn't need to understand why. But I've called you friends, verse fifteen, for everything that I learned from my father. And Jesus learned everything from the Father. Chapter 5, verse 20, The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he does. The Father gave Jesus top security access, as it were. The Father loves Jesus and gives, shows him everything that he does as Jesus walked through life. And now he says to the eleven apostles, Everything I learned from thy Father I have made known to you. They couldn't cope with it all yet. The Holy Spirit was gradually going to unpack it, as we'll see later. But but I've entrusted you with all of this, and the reason I've entrusted you with this is not just so that you can become um, those tiresome children in Sunday school who think they know it all. The reason I've done that, verse 16, is because I want to send you on mission. You didn't choose me, he says to the eleven apostles. I chose you. It's exactly what he did. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, to go on mission. To go with this message that I've given you, and to bear fruit, winning others, so that they too will live Christ-like lives, and then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Now, just just pause on 15, in the beginning of 16. Jesus has given them insight into the Father and into the, into Jesus and the whole Jesus thing. He's given them insight to all of that, the apostles, in order that they can go on mission. It's a little bit like my father landed on D-Day with the first wave of British troops. And uh, I remember he showed me, he's given them to a museum now, but he showed me what he had in his battle dress as they crossed the Channel. And there was, there was a marvellous, there was a cloth um, sort of pastiche of maps with aerial f- reconnaissance maps of the, the, the beachhead, the area where they were going to land. And there was a wonderfully detailed map showing heights of sea walls and locations of gun emplacements and all that kind of thing. And he had that as an officer. He had that in his battle dress. But he didn't have it just so that he could say to people, look, I've got all this clever stuff. He said it because they had a battle to fight. And he needed it for the battle. And Jesus gives his apostles these things because they need it for mission. And we have what he gave the apostles in the New Testament. So it's not that Jesus gives us a hotline to the Father that bypasses the Apostles. It's that he gives the Apostles all this wonderful message. They had it written down in the New Testament, which is the Apostles' teaching. And we have it in the Apostles' teaching. So why have you got a Bible? Why have I got a Bible? Because God wants us to know the message so that we can take it to others. Go. Think of Passion for Life, for example, and all the other things we do by way of of outreach. That's their purpose on earth and it's our purpose on earth. And in that context, there's a wonderful ministry of prayer. Verse 16, the Father gives you whatever you ask in my name. Asking because of Jesus and what he's done for them. And then lastly, you've got the miracle of the church. This is my command. Love each other. And wonderfully, in London, which is an extraordinarily dysfunctional, unrelational place. In London, there are local churches into whose life the love of the Father has been poured through the Son, and in whose life, as churches, the love of the Father and the love of the Son is lived out, and out of whose life that love is overflowing out to others. And local churches should be beacons of the love of God and places where the glory of the Father is seen and when that happens what's happening is London is a wilderness London is full of thorns and thistles and weeds morally relationally but in here and there in London vines are being planted men and women who are in the Lord Jesus and who are living lives together relationally of order and purity And love and care for one another, and fairness and justice and truth, and that's a wonderful thing. Let me tell you a story, which I uh, to close, which I often um, tell others. We had a Cornhill student quite recently from um, one of those Stans, you know, the the, 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 used to be Soviet republics just south of of Russia and Ukraine, you know, nasty Stans. I'm not going to tell you which one because he's back there now, married a British girl. I took their wedding, and that he's back there now and it, it would be very dangerous for him if it were known that he'd trained in a Bible course here. But I vividly, I'll call him Abdul, it's not his name, but I remember, vividly remember Abdul coming for interview for Cornhill. And I asked him, I said, um, Abdul, tell us how you became a Christian. He was 27 at the time. He said, well, it was 10 years ago when I was 17. I was a Muslim family. My father had built the mosque in the village where we lived. And... Um, I was a very zealous Muslim I wanted to be a, an imam or something like that I wanted to be a Muslim leader and my older sister became a Christian and uh, she finally she told me which is a brave thing for a sister to do in a Muslim family tell your brother you've become a Christian and she finally persuaded me to go to church with her and I went very suspicious and he said now I want to explain he's not a poet he's, he was a 27 year old farmer you know he's a big tough kind of guy He's not prone to saying soppy things, but he said to me, I can remember it over the table, that interview, he said, When I went to that church, he said I had never seen such love. And it melted my heart. Isn't that amazing? And I thought I was meant to be interviewing. I had tears welling up my eyes as he said that. I was trying to think of you know, trying to do a proper interview. That was wonderful, isn't it? I'd never seen he'd never seen that love in the mosque never seen it elsewhere in his his society but what had happened was that the love of the father which was poured out on the son, through the son had been poured out on those men and women I'm sure there was lots wrong with that church but the love of the father had been poured out through the son and that church had been a place where that love flowed in and from which that love flowed out and Abdul tumbled into the kingdom of God and he's now back there serving God with his British wife She's a brave girl because it's a miserable place to live. And God willing, God willing, their son um, in a few weeks' time, I think, When's their son due April, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Let me let me finish there. Um, I've completely forgotten how long I've been going or what the time is or anything like that. Let me consult. Ten forty-five. Ten forty-five. Coffee time. Let me pray, and we'll break. And I'm going to hand back to Matt. Or to the musicians, I don't know who I'm handing back to. Gracious Father, we thank you for the love that pours out fruitfulness into a wilderness world. We thank you that that love is focused in Jesus and through Jesus in Jesus' people. And we pray for Christchurch Mayfair that uh, we might be a church that is marked by that fruit of the Father's love. For Jesus' sake and his honour and glory. Amen.